Hey, it's Jonah Budd. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best, so I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. How do you handle a scary diagnosis? What about if it was your partner or child? It's something people always deal with, and we want to give it the right attention. We also want to touch on the need to end parental alienation for the benefit of everyone in the family, and why this Hockey Canada sexual assault scandal is a larger issue than just these five players. We'll also dive into Elmo's tweet that exposed just how people are doing and why it's so important children know it's okay to feel emotions, even the negative ones. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help make you be at your best. I need to be here with you all right now because I need support and I need some uh, some friends. I need some kind wishes. I need some positive stories. I need some positive wishes uh, because I'm dealing with stuff. I'm dealing with stuff. And I'm not dealing with it alone. I'm dealing with my wife, Pumpkin, who's been with me together now 37 years. I think we're married 35, 36, but we've been uh, exclusive, as they say, for 37 years. So here's how the story goes. And I want to hear if you have one similar or you want to just text in 877-399-9898. Send us some good wishes, some positive uh, thoughts and vibes. That would be awesome. Love to hear from you. I could really use your help right now. So uh, about a year ago, noticed that my uh, <clears throat> wife had, um, I don't know I, whether I was mumbling. I, I sort of thought I was mumbling for a long time. You know, she'd say, I can't hear you. And I, you know, my, you're mumbling. I said, I don't think I'm mumbling. I'm not really a mumbler. Uh, I may talk too much, but I'm not really a mumbler. So we just noticed over the last, you know, year or so, that some of her hearing wasn't what it should have been or what it should be. And maybe we'll get it checked. And, you know, we are both getting a little bit older, although she looks like, you know, she's a rock star at, you know, at 40 and um, just, you know, amazing looking woman, very well put together, very, uh, you know, anyway, not, not likely someone that's going to pretend she can hear when she can't. It's not who she is. So we began this process. She began this process of trying to figure it out. Decided, you know what? Because my father has just, uh, her, our, my father, her father, we, her, her, she is the daughter my father never had. Um, very, they're very, very close. So my dad went through this whole thing of getting a hearing, getting a hearing aid. You know, the guy's uh, just turned ninety-seven. He's got some slight hearing loss in both ears. Still doesn't wear glasses. Doesn't need glasses to read. Like it's really pretty amazing. His doctor says he's got the heart of a of a forty-year-old. Uh, but anyway. Um, so she worked with him to, cause he's, she's the only one he actually even listens to and, and has really any respect for. Um, so she was talking to him about getting hearing aids. So he went about six, eight months ago, he's got them. Sometimes he puts them in, sometimes he doesn't put them in. Uh, so she decided, you know, we had a chat about it. She goes, you know what? I'm going to go get my ears checked, my ears checked. So she went to a clinic, a retail clinic that deals with hearing aids and hearing tests and stuff like that. They did a hearing test. They said you've got some some uh, fairly significant hearing loss in one ear. You should probably see an uh, ear, nose, and throat guy, an ENT, an ear, nose, and throat doctor, and uh, probably talk to them, maybe get an MRI. So this is coming out of a clinic. Who, you know, I'm always under the impression these places are there to sell their 
hearing aids, which is just freaking outrageous, but that's besides the point. So she gets her family doctor, excuse me, gets her family doctor to uh, connect her, refer her to a ear, nose, and throat guy. Uh, We get to the ear, nose, and she gets to the ear, nose, and throat guy. Not the most efficient operation. Took them three and a half weeks to get a referral, an MRI. Um, I must say I, I do have some, some benefits because I've helped a lot of people in my years and I do know some doctors and I do know some, <clears throat> some, uh, some folks that are, uh, in the, uh, radiology business and so on. So we're able to get a little, a little quicker than most, but this, cl- this clinic that she went to this, this doctor, this ENT, they're not very efficient. Like they really dragged the drag. We're dragging their their heels and sent the wrong form, didn't spell the name right. And it's the, you can imagine, right? So we're doing going through all this without knowing anything about anything other than she's got some hearing loss. You with me so far? Here's the number, 877-399-9898. If you want to join me, share with me, say something nice. Love to hear from you. If you got a story to share, like to hear that too. So here's the deal. So the deal is she goes to the ENT, makes an appointment for the MRI. Yeah, we talked about that. She finally got the referral to the MRI, the MRI place uh, that we uh, we kind of leaned on a little bit, got friendly with some of their staff. They had a they had a last minute cancellation at like nine o'clock at night. We found out about it fairly early in the morning. No problem. Let's go do this thing. So my wife doesn't do really well with MRIs because I need to stop the story for a second and tell you that ten years ago. We were faced with the, she was faced with, and we, when I say we, because we're in it together, we're, we're both our, 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 uh, our, um, our ride and die, you know, we're, 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 we're together. We're, we're, we're a team no matter what happens. Anyway, so 10 years ago, I went through this with breast cancer and thank God 10 years later, she's now free of breast cancer and just, just uh, was fired by her, her oncologist less than a year ago. So fast forward now, we're dealing with, okay, let's see. She doesn't do really well with MRIs, so we provide medication for the MRIs, a couple of Ativan and a Gravol kind of spaced properly, so she's fairly dozy going into the MRI. Now, this MRI for for, for head and hearing, it's a cage, right? Really scary-looking cage. Put the cage on your head, then they put you through the machine, then they take pictures using the cage. You get my drift. Like, it's just not nice. She's freaking out. She couldn't do it the first time. She had to come out. We added a little more medication. She sat with me a little bit. We did some some breathing exercises. She went back into the machine. Though, and and the and the and the technologist, the woman who was looking after her, the 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 um, MRI tech, was just unbelievable. She was just amazing. Just the most incredible human being I've I, I can remember in this kind of a job. Has the MRI? Get out of the MRI. Go home. Got to wait a few days for the MRI results. We stayed on it. We signed up for an app. There's a, a My Health app where you can get the MRI results really quick, which means we then had the ability to send them to people if we needed to, if they weren't fast enough in getting the referral documents out. Y'all with me so far? Right? Ordinary day. Has some hearing loss. Get the MRI results. She calls me from the doctor's office. She says, you know, I don't. she didn't want me to go, right? We didn't need to go. I was. I had some some sessions and I just couldn't get out of them. I got some, some people that are really in need these days. So I couldn't really switch it around. Couldn't anyway, she normally we go to these appointments together. No big deal. I'll get the MRI results. We'll find out about my hearing and then we'll deal with it. 
So she calls me and she said, uh, I want you to listen to what the doctor has to say. Puts me on the phone with the doctor. He says in a very cold, calculated, non-emotional kind of way, uh, we found a tumor on your wife's brainstem, which is affecting her hearing. It's going to affect her balance. It's benign. They never seem to ever become malignant or cancerous. And this is what we need to deal with going forward. Wow. I was out of breath, shocked. She was crying in the car. Almost impossible for her to get from the appointment back home, which is where she needed to be with me. Talking about what happens when someone in your life um, gets diagnosed with something really ugly and scary. We're talking particularly about my wife, recently diagnosed with a... uh, a tumor, a benign tumor on her brain stem. It's something that sounds like shawarma. It's like a shawarma tumor. Um, and um, one in 100,000 people have it anyway. Without getting into the technology or, or the specifics or the data about the particular diagnosis, it's just a really crappy thing for us to have to deal with, specifically for her, the poor thing. I mean, she's been through so much and such a fighter um, but you know what? Like a lot of people have said, Hey, you know, if you're going to get a brain tumor, this is the good one to get. That's what they told her about her breast cancer too. And I guess she's getting sick of hearing about it. And you know, how does it affect me? How's it affect her? It affects us both differently. I'm trying to coach her through it. Hey, like, babe, it's, you know, we got through this. It's going to be okay. We're going to make it fine. That's what I want to say. It's what we all want to say, right? It's going to be okay. I got you. And I mean it. I mean all of it. But what's it mean to her? What's it mean to the loved one who's listening to it? The person who's actually affected by the diagnosis. I'm telling her to chill out and relax, and we're going to be through, get through this together. But she's the one that's got something built, growing in her brain. So it's really about the anxiety and the fear and the ruminating and all the stuff that's going through her head. Not so much about the diagnosis, but how she's coping with it how someone that you're with is coping with it. And that's really what's about. So, you know, we found out this diagnosis late last week. You know, having a difficult time Friday night, we canceled dinner with all of our family, which we normally have. So she had some of her own time. Excuse me. Then we got out of town. We live in Ontario. We got out of town. We went to Northern Ontario to a cottage, to a, not a cottage, but a place where we could rent for a couple of days. Just get away from it all. Distraction. We laughed. We giggled. We were watching Friends, the, the, the TV show nonstop, uh, you know, binge watching it like crazy. Maybe uh, smoked a little cannabis, honestly, right? Just kind of had a chill out time, laughing and giggling, just being together. No muss, no fuss. That's what she needed at the time. Me, I'm freaking out. I'm having a much harder time with it than she is. Because I'm, I, like most of us, certainly like I'm sure you all feel, when in this kind of situation, what do you do? Like, what's the right thing to say? Because I can't fix this, right? This is, beyond, this is beyond the scope of Yona. I can't fix this. All the coaching and therapy and mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapy and all the techniques and tools and skill sets that I teach people so they can help teach people so they can have a better life, whatever that means for them, whether it's in coaching, whether it's in therapy, whether it's getting a better job or whether it's getting over a horrible 
you know, uh, a horrible uh, addiction issue or mental health issue or a terrible diagnosis. I've dealt with hundreds of people in my career that reach out to me through family members to say, hey, I just found out something horrible and all I want to do is drink or go get high or jump off a building or something horrible. Well, let me tell you something. I'm married, I think, to the most resilient human being on the planet. She's having a much, I won't say easier time of it, but I think she's managing it better than I am. We don't really talk about that too much because it's my job to be as strong as I can be. Last thing I want for her is to feel that I'm having moments of weakness other than I tell her I wish I could do more. I feel terrible because I wish I could do more. How do you feel about it? I want to hear from you. 877-399-9898. What's our job? What's our job when someone gets diagnosed with something really crappy, right? And then they have to move on with their lives. What do they look for from us to support people in their lives? Partners, spouses, uh, sons, daughters, loved ones, best friends, colleagues sometimes at work. Sometimes it's a colleague. Someone who's not so involved with you is an easier person to talk to about some of the crappy things in your life because they're not, they don't have that emotional attachment. For us, it's a different story. For us, it's about support. For me, it's about giving my wife the room that she needs to feel whatever she needs to feel while being there with her every step of the way. She wants to cry, I'm there with her. She wants to laugh, I'm there with her. You want to binge watch? We'll do that too. Want to smoke a joint? I'm there to watch too. I'm there to participate. Whatever whatever needs to happen to feel better. Yoga, stretching. First thing she did is call her therapist. Second thing she did is double up on her therapy, on her uh, on her yoga stuff. She's doing, frankly, a much better job than I am. She seems to have much more control over what's going on in her life, clearly, than I do. Because it's about the acceptance. It's much easier for us to accept as someone dealing with the diagnosis directly as it is for those participating in it sort of from the outside. I wouldn't say I'm really from the outside, but it's not my brain tumor. It's my wife's brain tumor. It's her diagnosis. It's our challenge together, but it's hers. She's the one that has to deal with it ultimately, come to terms with it ultimately, be able to sleep at night with it going on in her brain ultimately. So what my wife does is she's burying herself in her work, she's very successful at what she does. She's a very successful uh, professional fundraiser. She's a chief philanthropy officer for a big organization, large organization. And she's buried in the work she does to save the lives of the people and impact the kids that she works with and so on, right? So the option for us is at this point, there's three options, they say, although we're getting to the best of the best in Ontario, maybe in Canada on Tuesday to talk with him. But primarily, they say they like to sit and watch it if it's not going to do much because some of these tumors can last longer than you can, longer than we can. You outlive them because they grow so slowly. That's the first option is wait and see. Hard to tell somebody with a brain tumor that's had cancer before. Let's wait and see what happens to it. Difficult, right? Second is they radiated some kind of really uh, newfangled approach to radiation. Has a tremendous impact. And then, of course, last but not least is surgery, which no one wants. It's never a good situation. But the question here and why I'm sharing with you all tonight is because I want you all to know that it's frustrating, even with all the skills and strategies and experiences that I have, still tough to do. 
So what do you need to do? You just need to be there. You need to be unconditionally involved with love, support, understanding, and provide the person with the room that they need to experience whatever emotional experiences they need. It's not up to you to say, you know, let's try to get over this or, you know, let's get you strong. Like you got to be ready when you're ready and you're only ready when it's the right time. So I hope for all of you that listening that are out there dealing with this kind of stuff, if you are, I wish you all the best. I wish you great success in the journey of getting to good health, physical, mental health. But remember, it's, it's their journey, not yours. It's important that you're there for them and make sure they're driving the bus with you supporting it. That's what I'm doing with my wife. It seems to work. It seems to be helpful. I want to thank everybody for their text messages. I got a whole bunch from uh, Kat and Catherine and Kevin and such of my buddies on text here. Really appreciate it all. Love you guys. Love you all. And appreciate the kind wishes. But just remember something, right? All you can do is your best. and The best is be who you are. You can't fix everything. You can't make things go away. But sometimes just being there unconditionally for somebody, for a laugh or a giggle or to hold them when they cry or to go have a, a pizza or, or, or eat too much sugar and candy together, sometimes that's the best medicine that you can provide. You know, I had a guy uh, in my practice for a few years. It's actually one of the, the longer patients I've had uh, in my practice for a few years and really had some issues uh, struggling with uh, alcohol abuse and, uh, and uh, at that point, cannabis use. Um, trying as hard as he could to try to make the pain go away from what his life was, his reality. Now, here's a reality at that point. When I met him, he had been divorced for several years, several years and separated for three years before that. So he's five years from his marital status of being married and living with his spouse. Three kids, two boys and a girl. And the result of the war with his wife, his ex-wife at the time, or uh, going through the separation, going through the divorce, had left him in a situation where all three of his children wanted nothing to do with him based on stories that the mother told. Not because my my, my patient, not because my guy had, you know, had uh, a history of any particular behavior with these kids or any kind of uh, situation that anybody could point to saying, you know, he's a lousy father because of this. He's a lousy father because of that. It was the anger, animosity, and the absolute just hatred that the ex-spouse, the wife in this kid case, the mother, had for the father. And in such, such a case, it had absolutely such a destructive impact on the children that whatever the mother was trying to accomplish by having the kids being separated from the father, which frankly is basically a great big F you to the father, you know, you're not going to do this. You're not going to do that. You're going to try, you know, you'll never carry on with your life. I'm going to take your kids away from you or certainly make it such that they don't want anything to do with you because you're a horrible human being. And you know what? Maybe as a father or maybe as a husband, he might have been a horrible human being. I don't know. I don't know the guy. But I think from a from a parental perspective, from everything I heard and stories he told me and what I, you know, what I, what I sort of was able to suss out, he was a pretty... Up until they broke up, it was a pretty active, consistently 
you know, decent father. Parental alienation. Listen to what it is. Listen how it's described. Have a listen here. Jono? Parental alienation is a pathological phenomenon in high-conflict divorces where one parent sabotages a child's relationship with the other parent. If the offending parent is successful in their mission, the child totally rejects the targeted parent. This would be severe alienation. Mild and moderate alienation involve partial rejection of a parent. What an alienating parent doesn't realize is that a child's harmed tremendously by the total or partial loss of a parent. So there you go. And I can tell you straight up that I had for many, many, many years, decades, three, four decades, uh, four decades, actually. Uh, I had a very active practice with uh, teenagers. Most most of my uh, pretty much 50, 60 percent of my practice were, were maybe 70 percent of my practice. Uh, teenagers, 13 to 20. And I can tell you how that dozens upon dozens upon dozens of kids, right? Treated over 40, 4,200, 40, almost 4,260 patients, I think, so far in my career. So say for small numbers, 200, had a couple hundred kids over my career that were affected by parental alienation and as a result ended up making really bad life choices resulting in substance abuse, you know, being sexually abused, being sexually abusive, not, you know, in some cases being, you know, very, uh, uh, you know, sleeping around, making the wrong choices, sending the wrong pictures, being a little too, uh, too uh, flirtatious when they shouldn't be, a little too much sex, too sexually active. Kids that get separated from one parent or another because the other parent weaponizes Hear my words. Weaponizes the relationship between the spouse that they don't like anymore and maybe owes the money or they're trying to get a settlement on a house or get some agreement or even worse, one of the, one or the other spouse meets somebody and they get to carry on and try to make a new life with the new person in their life. Well, that can certainly piss off the one that's left behind enough, enough to turn your kids against. But you see, when you weaponize a kid and I see it, at six, at seven, at eight, at 13, at, at 17, at 16, I see it. And when you weaponize a kid, when you use the relationship with your children in a battle between you and your spouse, ex-spouse, or anything close to that combination, it's no different than using human shields as we see in the war in the Middle East. When the bad guys are using the positive population as a shield to keep them from being killed in war. Same thing. A parent's using their children as human shields to avoid the conflict that they have with the other. And it's not even to avoid the conflict, frankly. It's to make their life as miserable as possible. I've heard many women tell me and many men tell me, well, I'll make sure they don't have the kids. I'll make sure she doesn't get the kids. I'll make sure he doesn't get the kids. I'm going to talk about his substance abuse. I'm going to talk about his poor mental health. I'm going to talk about when he, you know, he had a problem and he went bankrupt a few years ago. Like, you know, people just want to spell out the worst stuff they possibly can when the relationship doesn't work anymore. And then they share that information with their children. Your 16-year-old daughter doesn't need to know that you and your husband, ex-husband, her father had issues and talk to her like she's your girlfriend. Our children aren't our friends. They're not your girlfriend. They're not your boyfriend. They're not your best buddies. They're your kids. 
And our job as parents, even if we can't get along as a united set of parents, is to make sure that the kids come first. Parental alienation is destructive. It's an emotional cancer. It destroys families. It destroys children. It destroys relationships. It destroys the, 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 the common wellness and the opportunity for the other spouse, one or the other, to do okay. And by the way, if you're breaking up with your wife or your husband or any combination that you call it in between and there's kids involved, and you take a position that you want to make sure that that they recognize, you know, that you, you make their life as difficult as possible because you're angry because of the, the reason you're divorced, whatever that might be, cheating, money, whatever, who knows, lying in the relationship. But when you weaponize your children, you leave your children with unhealthy parents. Not only do they get destroyed in the combination of information you share with them in a negative way, But every judge, every psychologist, every social worker, and every therapist that deals with kids, families, and families that are disrupted in some way will tell you, children need both parents. And unless both parents or one parent is highly toxic, unhealthy, dangerous, something like that, kids need parents. I used to work in the prison system for over a decade. I used to talk to guys. It was a male prison, obviously. Talk to guys. Talk about reconnecting with their kids. Haven't talked to them in years. Don't know if they'll even talk to me. And it's remarkable how a child will reconnect with a parent after they've been in prison for seven years or five years or 20 years or whatever. Kids want their families, need their families, whether they're together or not. Whether mom and dad are together or not, it's a separate conversation. But for mom to dump on dad or dad to dump on mom and and, and break them down and, 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 and discredit them to their children, make their children, put their children in a position where they have to choose. doesn't get more destructive than that, my friends. So talk about abuse. That's the ultimate abuse. So suck it up. Be the parent you need to be. Put your personal feelings aside and do the right thing. Don't crap on your, on your spouse in front of your kids. Keep it to yourself if you have to share it with anybody at all. What the hell is up with famous people who make big mistakes, do stupid things, do dangerous things, do horrible things to people, and because of their profile, we as a society, people in companies, in this case, hockey organizations, all kind of try to stick handle the issue around it. What's the stick handle? If it was a guy on the street that accidentally or purposely assaulted somebody, we would have no problem jumping on a bandwagon going, there need to be the proper results here, the proper justice here. Has to be in place. Can't tolerate this kind of behavior. Thinking about, you know, the loss of so many young Aboriginal girls and women who go missing and are lately found, later found and discovered in horrible situations, and for many, 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 the investigation lasts like no time at all. And then we move on. Because for some pe- some people, they feel that there's certain populations of our world that are disposable, and guess what? That's bullshit. I'll probably lose my job for saying that, but it's not, it, there's no such thing as disposable, catastrophic casualties 
that we can consider collateral damage in the world of crime and abuse. I'm not talking about on the on on the on the on the field of battle here. So we're looking at these five Canadian junior world hockey champions. Young kids grew up in hockey their whole lives. Nice boys for the most part. They're certainly on the outside. And like many young men, unfortunately, whether it's the hockey scandal thing at St. Mike's uh, College in Toronto not long ago or across Canada, other situation that we see in universe, on university campuses amongst other people of power and politicians and business people, business executives, entertainment folks, quote-unquote famous people. And we and they and they they're alleged to do horrible things, and then their companies, their brand control, their marketing people all jump in to kind of mitigate or make that situation a little bit better, try to put a better spin on it. Okay, so I'm here to tell you there isn't a spin for bad behavior, whether you're a champion, and frankly, people like these alleged young men, as good a hockey player as they might be or as famous any one particular newscaster is, or actor or actress or person in, 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 in a famous position, as good as they we all think they are at their job, or as, as champion-like that they are in their job, you know, these championship hockey players, they're not champions. If it, Listen, these are alleged situations. We don't know if they happened or they don't happen, didn't happen in this particular case. One thing for sure, we know that this happens in organized sports, in professional sports. We know what happens in professional industry. We know what happens in the entertainment space. We know what happens with politicians and quote-unquote famous, powerful people across our globe. They do bad things. Or they do things that are alleged to be bad. And 99% of the time, if you follow the stories, they either pay somebody off at the end of it and make it all go away or they somehow are able to sidestep the whole thing with some other kind of, of uh, distracted story or, or, or position. Or some, like some of these hockey players, are using mental health as a reason to you know get a handle on their bad behavior ahead of any kind of diagnosis. By the way, getting mental health care to try to avoid the consequences of bad behavior isn't a cool thing to do. It really doesn't fly. I know that my facilities, my people that work with me on my team, we do a hard, we do it, we do a, 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 we spend a lot of time making sure that the people we treat are actually motivated to be there and not there to avoid a criminal trial or to go back to work or to get back with a wife or a husband or something like that. Motivation can't be a reward you get for getting clean and sober and getting your mental health in check. The reward has to be the better health, the sober life, the improved success that you have with others. So let's go back to these young men that were allegedly involved in an assault. And we're all talking about it. Everybody's talking about it. Listen to the commissioner of, of uh, hockey. His name's Gary Bettman. Jono? This is not typical of NHL players. Uh, these players weren't uh, NHL players in the league playing games at the time this incident, alleged incident, took place. Uh, and we are committed and we do this through programs that we administer for our players, whether it's the rookie orientation program or the annual programs for education and counseling that we put on for our players. This is not representative, these allegations of what takes place in our game. Okay, so 
I don't know how well you know Gary Bettman. I don't know him at all, but I think that that is a very political statement. I think it does happen in hockey. I think it happens in baseball, football, soccer, all organized sports, dance, gymnastics. We've seen it all happen in and around Olympic teams and, you know, young people at their best in terms of their athletic ability happening to them being more victim than, than perpetrator. But don't think that famous people don't have this on the top of their minds for many. Because once you get to a position of power, you think that anything you want is okay. And the allegations that there's a woman involved, a young woman involved, that, uh, that attended, a, 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 you know, attended with one of the hockey players for some kind of, you know, casual hookup or whatever it is, if you read the story, or if you believe in the, in the information that's provided, and then a, allegedly a bunch of his friends then jumped in on the bandwagon after they had their time together, the two of them. And you know what's really interesting? No one's talking about the victim. Very few people are talking about the victim, about the person who claims and probably has a, a, you know, some story here that has some semblance of reality or it wouldn't have got this far. There's great investigators that are involved in these processes. Innocent people typically don't get charged with these things if, if, if a decent investigation is underway and no one's trying to hide it. That's what's being hidden. By Canada, Hockey Canada, NHL, everyone that's in that world, their 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 uh, their their sponsors, their their agents, they were trying to hide it, make some of this go away, make it not such a big deal. What about the poor young lady? What about the young lady that was affected? Is now the victim of this? What are we doing for her? We're talking about what's fair for her, what's fair for the victims in these situations. We never talk about the victims, right? The press is always about the accused. Let me tell you, my friend. Trauma is a tough thing to get over. And you know what? There's trauma in being an accused. There's trauma in being a victim. There's trauma for families. There's traumas for business that are attached to some of these brands, some of these names, some of these profiles, human profiles. So I don't know. I, I think we need to do a better job as, as a society to not let people get away with stuff just because they're important. I can tell you quickly one story where I worked for a company as a coach and one of the one of the employees, one of the key executives who brought in, you know, seven, eight, nine million dollars worth of revenue every year was involved in some inappropriate activity with an employee, another employee junior to them. It's against the company policy, against the law. Took the company a year and a half to figure out what they do because they didn't want to interrupt the cash flow. Wrong motivation, wrong information, wrong approach. Sometimes it's a costly, a materially costly exercise to do the right thing. Sometimes you got to walk away from a job. You got to walk away from a marriage. You got to walk away from an opportunity because it's just not the right thing. Morally, ethically, it doesn't feel right for you. And when people are abused in whatever way, verbally, physically, anything in between, it's just not right. So, whether this story is true or not true, I can tell you, if this isn't true, there's many that are and may never, ever get to court because, unfortunately, the victims get shunned much sooner they can get the stories out. Elmo socials were slightly shocked by the outpouring of uh, sometimes funny responses, but some uh, people started 
just putting stuff back. Like my monthly health insurance premiums have gone up. I'm feeling horrible. My daughters don't respect me. What am I going to do next? Like looking to Elmo for some for some feedback, for some support. Listen to Elmo and his dad, Louie, his father had to say on USA Today. How are you doing? Oh, thank you for asking. Well, you know, Elmo's really, really happy. Um, and Elmo's glad that he got to talk to a lot of people yeah. and see how they're doing. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of people expressing a lot of feelings out there. It gave me some goosebumps, I'll tell you that. Aww. So so many people willing to just let my boy know what's really going on inside. Aww. Yeah, and you know what? Um, Daddy helps Elmo with the Twitter, with the, with the X, because um, <laughs> Elmo can't read. Oh, oh right. only three. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of run it for him. He's yeah, okay. only three and a half. Oh, so yeah. Fingers right. don't really know the letters that good. Yeah. There you go. Three and a half year old Elmo and his dad trying to help those out there make a difference. I have a guest with me this evening. Her name is Dr. Ashley Miller. She's a child and family therapist and the co-author of a really good book called What to Say to Kids with Nothing with Nothing. When, I think it's Say to Kids When Nothing Seems to Work, a practical guide for parenting and caregivers. Um, Ashley, thank you so much for being here with us tonight. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, there's a like a really cool story. It sounds so soft and warm and cuddly, and that's kind of where I was originally coming from. But then I started thinking because I we're fortunate to to, to have you with us. Um, I kind of started thinking of it kind of a different way a little bit. And and I and here's where I'm coming from a little bit. Now, first of all, I want to know more about you in a minute, but uh, and more about the book and such. But um, kids and how it relates to telling them stuff that you know maybe not really kid stuff you know maybe how you're feeling i tell parents all the time to try to be transparent with your kids about their feelings and most parents say you don't want to burden them and don't want to make my kids feel bad because i'm feeling bad uh doc what's the what's the right approach with uh, young children we tell them the truth or not oh wow that's a that's a really good question off the bat so First of all, I didn't know Elmo was three and a half, so that's... Yeah, I, I really, me too. Head. Very mature for his age. <laughs> yeah, it's a really different context. I was not I was just thinking Elmo's a Muppet, and, you know, we actually use in, in therapy with kids, we sometimes use puppets um, mm -hmm. or talk about pets to help uh, kids feel more comfortable talking. So I guess Elmo had that effect. But to your question, uh, I, you know, in a general sense, you want parents to be the leader and kids to be the followers and not the other way around. It's kind of a dance, right? And the parent leads. Mm -hmm. So you want the, the child to always feel that they can be comfortable going to their parents with anything and everything. And the parent's going to be there for them. Uh, it's not the same in reverse. So it's not, you know, you don't want parents or other adults to be sharing things with kids that are above their developmental level to really get and parents shouldn't be turning to kids for support now the caveat mm -hmm. to that is that as kids get older they are sponges they often know more of what's going on than we think they do so it's good to let them know a little bit about what's going on and the older the kid and teen or young adults you know then you start to share more because it's kind of creepy to kids in a way if you say, oh, everything's fine, everything's totally fine, and they can see on your face that you've just been crying. Um, yeah. You better share a little, but not not the whole deal, for sure. 
That, that's uh, great advice. I concur. And, and, uh, and I, 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 we did a, we did a segment, a couple, we did a segment, uh, on the, on the first hour about parental alienation. I'm sure that's something you're familiar with. And, um, you know, and, and talking about parents, you know, when they break up and, and marriages break up and divorce and such, for some reason, I find that, that parents seem to, especially like you say, with teenage kids in particular, more than with younger kids, but somehow they make them their friends and buddies and end up starting to talk to them about the struggles they're having in their own marriage separation like that's just not healthy right well it's kids i mean they want to to know that you like them that you love them but they don't need you to be their best friend and teenagers don't really want that uh in general no kid wants to be in the middle between two warring parents that's Mm -hmm, kind of mm -hmm. a very very uncomfortable place to be so we always recommend that parents find other supportive adults that they can talk to. They may not have their ex-partner anymore, um, but there's got to be somebody else so that the child doesn't get put in the middle. And sometimes you think, oh, well, they're mature, they can handle it, but they may feel a little special, but don't mistake that specialness for happiness. They don't want to be in the middle. I love that. I think you're bang on the money. You know, um, one of one of the things we we seem to see with um, parents, like some uh, during the pandemic in particular, uh, people were like a lot of adults were overwhelmed. A lot of people, everybody was overwhelmed. Certainly, I was. Uh, a lot of people were overwhelmed, and and I found that parents were struggling with trying to explain to their children that they're having a difficult time. There's a right way to do this and a wrong way to do this, but is there some benefit here in a parent, in a parent not always being Superman or Superwoman or Superperson, and in fact showing that they're human too? Yeah, exactly. So for example, when, when you get, uh, you know, hurt by something a kid does, it's okay to let them know that because that's how they develop empathy um, and if you're struggling, like I was saying before, if you try to just pretend you're super person, you know, it's not going to work because they can see through that. So kind of like realistic. Yeah, I'm having a hard day or I made this mistake. It, it helps them also feel that they don't have to be perfect. They don't have to hide everything. So it's kind of like a contained um, disclosure. Ideally, not not turning to them to pick up your pieces, but filling them in a little bit on what they can probably suspect is already going on. I'm talking to Dr. Ashley Miller. She's a child and family therapist, co-author of What to Say with Kids Nothing When with Nothing When Nothing Seems to Work: Practical Guide for Parenting and Caregivers. Uh, Dr. Ashley, we're going to take a break here, but before we do, I have a another question, and I'd love to have you stick around and come back. Um, you know, we we we're just talking about the transparency and the honesty that you have that we have with kids. Um, I, I I sometimes find it's difficult to counsel people on uh, adults and, and working with young people. Uh, how they can talk to someone about some of the things that are bugging them for the purposes of teaching the young person how to share. That's not a bad idea, right? we got about a minute. Yeah, it, it's, it's not a bad idea. So you're saying to, uh, to let the kids know a little something or to talk to somebody. Yeah. To be basically a parent, let the, let the, let the kids know that, you know, mommy's sharing with you now because she's feeling a little uncomfortable. So it's something you can do too. Oh yeah. Kind of, yeah. Kind of sure. modeling like, the behavior. Yeah, you can you can model the behavior so long as it's it's age appropriate. So with a little kid, you might just say, "Oh, mommy was feeling sad," or "I was thinking about something sad." Um, if you're watching a movie together, you can talk about it and how you feel in that way. That's usually very safe. 
And if it's an older kid or teen and you want to give them a few details, so long as, you know, you can gauge by their reaction. Kids will usually tell you, like, TMI or they'll yeah. you'll see on their face that they're getting uncomfortable. Um, a little too much, I, too I fast. Would, yeah, I yeah. take that to heart. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? I'm interested in hearing a little bit about the book you wrote. Oh, well, thanks for asking. So I wrote it with Dr. Adele LaFrance, who's one of the uh, main developers of something called Emotion-Focused Family Therapy, which is uh, basically a, a family intervention primarily directed at parents and caregivers to help them um, with uh, with teaching their kids more around their emotions, expressing emotions. And so the book is really not meant for uh, clinical populations, but just for kind of any parents of kids, uh, mostly up until age 12. But a lot of the principles do apply to teenagers and, in fact, to everyone. Uh, and there's a chapter on how to um, help your co-parent when emotions run high, which, you know, tends to happen pretty often in households with kids. So um, when you talk to parents about kids in particular, and we're going to get to that in a minute, and I want to know what you're talking about these days, um, what do you tell them about how to keep their kids resilient, but at the same time be sensitive to not giving them spooky and scary stories? Uh, well, I think resilience is built in so many different ways, but the, one of the, the main ways is just having a caring adult who always has your back and being able to talk to them about whatever's going on. So what we really try to encourage from parents, not all the time, but, you know, as much as they can, is, is really to listen to kids, to um, try to hear them out without rushing in to fix the problem. And that's easier said than done. Uh, parents know how to fix problems. Uh, we're generally experts at it, but it's the, the, the pause of, of just listening and just helping kids be with their emotions that is a little trickier. Do you have uh, kids of your own? Can I ask you a personal question? Sure. Yeah. I'm pretty open about that. I, I do have, uh, I have older teens. Well, you sound like an older teen, so it's hard to believe that, but okay. So when you, <laughs> when you, when you raised your kids, um, you practice what you preach or is it more difficult to do with all the knowledge that you have, but when you're a mom and you're actually in it, can you can you find your way to separate the two? You make it work? Yeah, I think we're all just parents, regardless of our jobs, uh, clinical or not. And so just like every parent, there are plenty of times that I lose my cool or that uh, my kids might have said to me, oh, you know, don't be such a therapist. So <laughs> I can definitely get the, the balance wrong in any direction just like everyone else but uh i do i do really try to put that into practice the uh taming the impulse to always jump in and fix yeah you and me both boy i could probably use some time with you i know you only deal with kids but i'm pretty i'm pretty immature by nature so i probably need a kid therapist uh anyway um my, my therapist tells me I, I need to grow up all the time so maybe, maybe you're a better maybe you're a better fit uh doc I, you know i'd like to talk for a minute about um kind of the stuff you're seeing these days i know my practice has changed greatly in terms of the stuff i do uh, in the last two or three years what are you seeing in particular like what's the come kind of some of the more common things that families are coming to you with or that you're helping young people deal with 
Well, I guess I, I have a little bit of a bias because I'm actually a child and adolescent psychiatrist at BC Children's Hospital. So I, oh, okay. I, I really do see more things that maybe haven't responded to the first interventions. Um, right. But I think in a general sense, in child and youth mental health, we're just seeing an increase in depression and anxiety, especially since COVID. But the truth is it was, it's been on the rise for the last 10 years. And uh, we see um, physical symptoms associated with stress. There was a rise in eating disorders and OCD as well with, with the uh, pandemic. Uh, but, yeah, I think this isn't news to anyone that there's been an increase in depression and anxiety for youth. Don't you think I know I was, by the way, just for the record, I was I was screaming it at the rooftops from the rooftops when the pandemic began and we were keeping kids at home from school. I'm sure you were dreaded by it. I was dreaded by it. Um, so at, but at the end of the day, when you're dealing when we're dealing with young people, right, and you're dealing with do, do you find that they're I, I know in my opinion, sort of, I, I see that young people seem to have lost some some sense of hope or or semblance of a, a bright future. Are you feeling that too and, and seeing and hearing that too? Or is it just kind of my slant on it? Oh, it's, I mean, it's definitely not your slant. I think in general, there's a sense of that. There's certainly a lot of reporting about it. I'm, I'm going to say my answer on this is mixed. If you, if you ask, uh, if you ask teens on any given day, there are just as many of them who are having a good time in life, who are optimistic, who are finding solutions to the problems of the world, the ones that the adults have maybe given up on. So I, I still think there's um, a great energy and optimism for the vast majority of youth. But is it true that there's a greater burden with climate change, with the 24-7 availability of social media, with all the other problems of the world right now, um, cost of living, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, of course. Um, but I just, I, I'm not, um, I'm not nihilistic about it. Like I really don't think teens are, are, are doomed to be uh, depressed and feel hopeless. I, I just don't see it that way. You know what? I'm liking you more and more all the time. And I talked to a lot of, I talked to a lot of therapists, a lot of doctors, a lot of psychiatrists in my career, and you sound more social worky than psychiatrist. And that's a compliment for sure. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, so I, I think we're, I think we're coming from the same place. I, I, I think there is a balance between many kids who are doing really well and some that aren't. Are, are you finding in the last few years that there's more of an of an openness that young people now, because we everyone's talking about it. The pandemic opened the floodgates of talking about mental health and you know how we're all feeling. Are, are you finding that there's more young people now, teenagers in particular, that are actually openly talking about it and, and sharing either amongst their peers or with experts like you and and, and school officials? Are, are they becoming more open to the concept of sharing? I think so, absolutely, and I, I would never. Um, go so far as to say that it's easy or there's no stigma or it's fully open because it's not. And I know there's lots of teens who are still suffering in silence, kind of uh, especially depending on their community or their particular environment. But as a general rule, yeah, for sure. I think they're so educated. You know, they'll come in and say, I've been reading about ADHD and I, you know, I think I have these symptoms. They're sometimes the ones educating their parents. Um, there's some downsides to that, but for the most part, I think it's really positive how informed teens are today. 
Okay, one major piece of strategy you can only give one. What's the key piece of strategy you would give to parents today about how to handle their young kids and their teenagers? Well, the key piece of advice, uh, and this is coming as a parent myself, but also as somebody Mm -hmm. who reads the literature on on this and reads the books, is honestly to to be kind to yourself. It's a very tough job, and uh, I know it can sound a bit pat, but if you have one hour in your week devoted to things that make you feel happy and make you feel good because the best gift you can give your kids is um, your own peace of mind. Dr. Ashley Miller, I'm going to have you back on the show sometime because I I really like sharing with you and I love where you're coming from. Child and family therapist, psychiatrist, co-author of What to Say to Kids When Nothing Seems to Work, a practical guide for parenting and caregivers. I'm going to definitely grab it when I get a chance. Thanks, Ashley, for so much. Thanks, Doc, for being here. Um, Your kids are lucky to have you and so are your patients. When we come back from break, we're going to do more stuff. Thanks, Doc. We'll do this again, yeah? Thanks so much.